Welcome to the Beach Grove United Methodist Church Sermon Podcast for Sunday, April 11th, 2021, the second Sunday of Easter. Thank you for listening this week, and if you would like to view the service in its entirety, please go to our Facebook or YouTube pages by following one of the links in the podcast notes. Also, we would like to invite you to please support our ministry here at Beach Grove through your tithes and offerings. We have both online and physical giving opportunities, and we encourage you to reach out to us if you have any questions about giving. Contact us if you have any questions. Our contact info can be found in the podcast notes as well. We hope you enjoyed this week's message, and please don't forget to share it with others. verses 1 through 10, and chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. We declare to you what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. This life is revealed, and we have seen it and testified to it, and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. We declare to you what we have seen, and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we were walking in darkness, we lie and do not do what is true. But if we walk in the light, as himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, and we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Okay, so when Pastor Andrew asked me to fill in for him, he told me that he was starting a new sermon series called The Perfect Christian. So he wanted me to start with start it off. So this is his introduction that I'll read to you. During, during the season of Easter, we reflect on the resurrection as we prepare for the sending of the church into the celebration of Pentecost. This season of celebration, marked by the white liturgical color, lets us focus on that which makes us perfect, God's abiding love and grace. We can often portray perfection as Christian as Christians as a matter of purity, spotlessness, and infallibility. However, 
This misses the mark of how the Bible talks about our nature of striving for perfection. In a theological understanding of grace passed through our Western heritage, perfection about, is about the manner in which we exist and live in God's love. And this manner of understanding is so beautifully explained in the first epistle of John. As we look at the manner in which we live in God's grace, we begin to understand perfection to live and share the perfect love of God. So, living justified. How exactly do we do that? And what does that even mean? First John, first chapter, and the second chapter, verses 1 and 2, encapsulates the grace of God through His Son, Jesus Christ. He is our example of God the living. He taught us many things, but mostly to think of the Father always. In that way, we will be mindful of our actions and how they might affect others. But most of all, who we are and whose we are. And that we are to live by faith in God's great love for us, His grace. To recap grace in the Wesley tradition, John Wesley taught us of one grace, God's grace, which is God's gift of undeserved favor for us. Wesley described the grace in two forms, or three forms. Provenient grace, which is that grace that God is willing to give us whether we live in faith or not. <clears throat> it is always there waiting on us, wooing us to a better life with Him. Justifying grace, that which is that grace by which we can find forgiveness for our sins. Sanctifying grace, which is that grace that gives us the power over sin. In my mind, I find Wesley to be pretty brilliant about this, and within that three-part structure, I can find that it also follows our understanding of the Trinity. Providing grace parallels the Father, in that both are eternal and universal. Justifying grace parallels the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, whose mission was to bring us forgiveness for our sins. Sanctifying grace parallels the Holy Spirit. As such, when we live in the Spirit, we will have the power to resist sin. In God's grace, we can be perfect. John Wesley gave a sermon on Christian perfection. And he says, the word, and he has a way with words, I'll tell you. Listen to this. The word perfect is what many cannot bear. The very sound of it is an abomination to them. And whosoever preaches perfection, as the phrase is, that is, asserts it is attainable in this life, runs a great hazard of being accountable by them worse than a heathen man or a publican. So I had to stop there and kind of look up the word publican. Wasn't exactly sure what it meant. So I found there are two definitions of the word publican in the British sense. It's a bar or a pub owner. I'm not exactly sure that's what he meant by that definition or that wisdom, though the temperance movement did have strong Methodist support at the time. The second definition in the Roman sense was a tax collector. Now I think we're getting somewhere. Perhaps a little closer to home for anyone versed in the Bible. Tax collectors were reviled as traitors and the worst sort of persons to the Jews in the biblical time. So yes, he was making a rather bold statement if he meant by that definition. To continue, he said, and hence, some have advised wholly to lay aside the use of those expressions because they have given so great offense. So I can see how one might repel from using the term perfection or other expressions of having attained it 
or telling others that they can too. We look at our human condition and perhaps we scoff at the idea of being so bold to utter such pie in the sky. We might call those professing professions as posers or hypocrites, and then we look for the dirt, so we look at them and say, aha, there I knew it. But Wesley goes on, but are, not, but are they not found in the oracles of God? If so, by what authority can any messenger of God lay them aside, even though all men should be offended? He concludes his opening thesis that we cannot lay these expressions aside. They are words of God, not of man. It is how we define this perfection. And he defined it as those who are sincere of heart, may not err to the right or left hand from the mark of the prize of their high calling. Wesley refers to Paul claiming himself not to be perfect, but who later speaks of others as being perfect. The goal is to become perfect. Wesley acknowledges that this seems to be a contradiction, but so none be lost, he laid out uh, one, in one sense, our Christian is not perfect. And then two, in what sense are they perfect? So in what sense Christians are not perfect? As I go through this last item using some of Wesley's language, and in it he refers to Christians as they. Perhaps he did so so not to offend his audience. But if you want the real impact, I suggest that when I say they, in your mind substitute we, or if you dare I. His first notion is that Christians don't have perfect knowledge. He says they don't have perfect knowledge. They are not free of ignorance. Christians may know of the world they live in the present and the general truths of God. They know that God loves them. They know of the mighty works of God, His wisdom and His providence, or Wesley says, but innumerable are the things that they do not know. They know but in part of His ways. But the thunder of his power? Who can understand? No one can fully understand the Trinity. Or how the eternal Son of God took the form of a servant. <clears throat> they cannot fathom one attribute, not one circumstance of the divine nature. They know not the time or season when God will work his great works. And I'll add to that what they might be. They do not know what will happen to hasten his kingdom. They do not know the reason for God's dispensations. They do not know how God created. They have their ideas, but so little is the knowledge, even for the best of men. And Wesley concludes, no one then is so perfect in this life as to be free of ignorance. Second, they are not free from mistake, because it is an, it is an inevitable consequence of their lack of knowledge. They are ever liable to err touching the things which they know not. Wesley asserts the children of God do not mistake as to the things essential to salvation. They do not put darkness for light or light for darkness. They've taught God, they've been taught of God and God's ways, and it's so plain that the wavering man, though fool, need not err therein. But he does conclude that they err frequently in the things not essential to salvation. Of those things he believes, even the best and wisest men are frequently mistaken, even with regard to facts. What they believe really didn't happen? 
really happening. And vice versa. Even if not mistaken by the actual fact, they get it wrong about its circumstance. Meanings, their facts are out of context. How many of us have read something in the Bible that we thought we understood? But years later we found out we didn't really understand it at all because we took it out of context. Maybe. Why? Maybe the language translation fooled you into thinking it meant something else. Or you were missing the historical context which gave it a whole other meaning. Once he said, even the children of God are not agreed as to the interpretation of many places in Holy Writ. That's as true today as it was in Wesley's time, and in Jesus' time, and in the prophet's time. Out of context facts can lead them to believe past or present good actions are evil, or evil actions are good. Likewise, they ascribe these out of context facts to a person's character. How many Christians throughout history believed one religious leader or another to be evil based solely on the fact that they might have been bucking the status quo? Wesley continued, nor is there difference of opinion and the proof that they are not children of God. We have these same problems today and we really need to listen to that. Third, Christians are not so perfect as to be free of infirmities. Wesley was not talking about outward sinfulness. He was talking about bodily infirmities and those inward and outward imperfections which are not of a moral nature. Such are, and another string of Wesleyisms here, such as weakness or slowness of understanding, dullness or confusedness, or apprehension, oh, confusedness of apprehension, incoherency of thought, irregular quickness, or heaviness of imagination. That's a string. These he categorized as the want of a ready or retentive memory. He continues in with, in some measure, consequence upon these slowness of speech, impropriety of language, and ungracefulness of pronunciation. These and a thousand nameless defects in conversation or behavior are found in the best of men. And from these, none can hope to be perfectly freed till the Spirit returns to God. Nor can we expect to be wholly freed from temptation. And I can add to Wesley's list of imperfections, uh, they don't have perfect judgment. I admit that some of that is based on the imperfect knowledge, ignorance and taking facts out of context. Uh, some of it is due to bias and prejudice, which could be distilled down to what Wesley described as infirmity. But in many respects, our judgment changes with the times. Things we wouldn't accept yesterday, we accept today. Things we accepted yesterday, we don't accept now. Some of this is due to complacency. Some of this is due to being battered by the world to where we either just don't care, or we just want nothing to do with it. In those cases, judgment becomes more and more flawed. Another imperfection, uh, we, they don't have perfect circumstances. Some people's circumstances are just dreadful. While, others, while some people's circumstances are what others would consider ideal, those, those circumstances, best or worst, or something in between, can be a starting point, a midpoint, or an end point of their lives, and they are no guarantee of outcome. 
but they could, they could, but they could if they let them. So Wesley moves on to what says our Christian is perfect. Now Wesley, most of it was talking about sanctifying grace, and in the very beginning, he talks about the prevenient and the and the uh, justifying grace. So very little of this is going to come from his sermon. Um, so Wesley admits that it's a process, just like growing up as a person, you go from baby to child to adolescent to adult. He backs this story up by quotes in other parts of 1 John. Uh, first by saying that John refers to little children, young men, and fathers, and commends the fathers for being perfect. While we're growing, there will be other people around you. Some older, some younger. Likewise, Christians, uh, a Christian reaches progression through growth in the spirit. And there will be other Christians in varying degrees further along the path to perfection than you, and others again in varying degrees further behind. Wesley believed that even babies in the faith are perfect in their own way. He said, born of God as, as first not to commit sin, which sounds great. But then he goes on later and says, Many may suppose they do not commit sin when they do, but this proves nothing either way. And further on, the Word of God plainly declares that even those who are justified, who are born again in the lowest sense, do not commit, uh, do not continue in sin. They cannot live therein. Now, I have to admit uh, that this is the part of the sermon that had me believing he was kind of contradicting himself. In my mind, Wesley and the scriptures are feeding me that by this guy to perfection. We first and foremost believe that we are all sinners worthy of death, but saved by grace. As hard as we try, we fall short of the grace of God, and we do sin. Knowing myself, my hand wasn't high. In that regard, uh, how can we be declared perfect, though we sin? How can we ever become sanctified, let alone this merely justified? Born again in the lowest sense, Christian. It does not continue in sin and cannot live therein. So I, I needed some help on this, so I talked to the pastor. We had a little discussion about it, and I needed to figure out how to rectify what I was reading to what I was thinking. So going into it, I already knew that a lot of it was a matter of faith. And that mine wasn't shaken, but I had some really deep questions and needed answers. And I have to say, Andrew did a good job. He laid them pretty well and pretty darn quickly. The first thing he said was, and I'll, I'll paraphrase phrase this, you have to get away from the notion that sin is merely a transactional thing. Wow. That pretty much sits right up for me, right there. In my mind, I immediately went back to the definition of sin. That I, the one I remember most, separation from God. So that separation is not transactional. It's relational. When I sin, I am breaking a relation. And to reach perfection, I have to seek to remain tied into the relationship. And this is where justified grace comes in and pushes us towards sanctified grace for perfection. It's make, make no mistake, though. We cannot live our lives any way we want, doing all matters of sins and think, well, Jesus will justify me later. Cannot take justified grace lightly. It's there for us, yes, but we must earnestly seek it if we are to restore relationship with God. To think of justification so cheaply is not keeping relationship with God. 
And let us not forget that we have human relationships that are broken by sin as well. I cannot say with any real certainty that God won't restore relationship with us unless we restore relationship with those we hurt by our sin, but it does stand to reason. I believe that it's harder and probably a messier part of justification. We're not going to hear a thunderous no from God when we earnestly seek his forgiveness, but I scarcely say the same for people we might have offended. Nonetheless, we have to bear ourselves to others just as we bear our souls to God. And let us not forget that there are two sides to an offense. You might be the one offended. And the other party is seeking justification. How forgiving are you going to be? Jesus taught us in, his, in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. That's a double-edged sword, folks. How can we ever expect to be forgiven if we don't forgive. And what about the parable of the unforgiving servant? He actually got his forgiveness from a huge debt and then paid it forward by not forgiving a small debt. We know what happened to him. The difference between, the difference between aging here on earth and reaching Christian perfection is reaching Christian perfection is determined by age. You can be light years ahead of Christians much older than you or light years behind those younger. Don't let that discourage you. If you're determined, nothing will stop you. Keeping a relationship with God is very similar to keeping a relationship with your friends and family. How strong is any human relationship if you never converse or visit? Likewise, how strong is our relationship with God when we never pray or study or worship? Perfection, and in this case, Christian perfection, is only reached by practice. We remember the old adage, practice makes perfect. It is true if you are learning an art or a skill. It is every bit as true for relationships. Practice is intentional. No one practices an art or a skill they don't intend to use. Why would they ever do that with relationships? Relationships are far more important, and no relationship is more important than your relationship with God. Brothers and sisters in Christ, our perfection begins in practice. <clears throat> in the intentional practice of keeping our relationship with God. To do that, we must continually tap into God's just, justifying grace. A life with the Son as our guide to the Father. In my conversation with Pastor Andrew, he also brought up that Wesley believed in a fourth grace, which he called convicting grace. But in reality, it's, it's an offshoot of justifying grace, meaning that that which urges us our conscience to seek justification. And to me, I found it aligns with another parallel to the faith. If you remember, I compared the three graces to the Trinity in their scope and form as we understand them. So what does convicting grace parallel? Well, if justifying grace parallels Jesus Christ, and convicting grace is an offshoot of justifying grace, what is the offshoot of Jesus Christ? It's the church. Now, let us not confuse the word convicting with accusing or trying in a legal sense. Because that is not the church's function at all. The church's role is to lead others to salvation by being an example to be followed. Not to hold people's past over their heads and browbeat them into submission. 
The conviction of one's soul that leads them to seek justification is through a willing and earnest desire to be a part of the church, the body of Christ, and therefore seek a relationship with God with the church's help. To live justified is to be free from the burden of past sins, moving forward with confidence in God's love for us and a renewed love for Him and others. As a church, we have to be the ones to help, to help people see for themselves the better way and to lift up those burdens. To do anything less is not the church. Amen.